we're dealing with um, the subject of Israel. And we know that whenever we even touch this subject, uh, we discover that it is a very, very controversial subject. Uh, we also see that there are those who, among the, among the Christians, who uh, have a love for Israel that really is a godly love for Israel. But we also see that there are many, many who have a hatred for Israel, and it is a satanic hatred for Israel. Of course, many explanations can be given by those, as we're hearing them today uh, in the news, and uh, uh, all kinds of criticisms of Israel that people use to justify their antagonism or their hatred uh, for the Jewish people and for uh, the land, uh, the land of Israel. But I think if we if we uh, hear these things, um, we can we can come to the conclusion, or we should come to the conclusion that that there's something irrational here. There is something that goes beyond any kind of human explanation. Uh, because Israel, after all, is a very small nation, and uh, as far as the numbers of Jews that there are in the world, and uh, the land of Israel is a tiny little, little uh, thing that you see on the map. Sometimes you can miss it very easily because it's so small. And so, uh, it doesn't really completely make sense, all of this enormous criticism worldwide against this little nation and, um, and against the people of Israel. And I would say that we're dealing with a mystery here. We're dealing with a divine mystery here. And the only way we can really begin to understand what is going on is to look more deeply uh, into this mystery. Uh, recently I bought a book. Uh, I like the title of it. And it says, Israel, My Home. That's the title of this book. And I just, and there, there are very nice photographs in this book. But I also discovered um, a, a paragraph in there that really spoke to me. I don't know who wrote it. It was most likely not a believer, uh, as we understand the believer. But it, I, I think it's of significance, and I want to read it to you, because it has to do with the subject I'm going to be speaking about, even if whoever wrote it um, wasn't conscious of that. It's called In the Beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Israel is the place where heaven and earth come together. Or better still, the place of their union. After thousands of years of separation, this is where they meet again. Blessed by the original light, Israel is the chosen place for the world's sanctification which must be fulfilled by man. Israel is one of the smallest countries on the planet, and also one of the youngest. Nevertheless, it is referred to as the birthplace of eternity. Here history and geography overlap, just as space and time do. The country with deep attachment to its soil raises its eyes to the heavens and finds in this tension the path of its uniqueness. The sky must embrace the earth, instilling it with spirituality. The earth must reach for the sky and gather the best it has to offer. Israel is the place of this union.
So the title of the, uh, the message you're going to bring is Israel's, Israel, God's Holy Sacrament. And um, I think that that's what the mystery is all about. The question is, what is the sacrament? For many of us who don't come from the historical churches, the, the term sacrament is a little bit, a, a, a term that's a bit strange to us. Uh, nevertheless, it is a very important phrase in the, uh, in the historical churches. And in Israel, we, uh, we, we don't use that term. Nevertheless, when you start looking at the mystery of Israel, you discover that we are dealing with the mystery of this sacrament. So what is a sacrament? If we think of the way in which uh, the Catholics and some of the other historical churches uh, understand what, what is called, uh, what we call communion or the Eucharist, uh, a sacrament is um, a visible manifestation or sign or a transaction that has to do with an invisible divine reality. And uh, it, it's something that's a mystery. Uh, there have been many attempts to explain it, to define it, but I don't think that that's a good idea. I think we have to leave mysteries as mysteries and proclaim them as mysteries, uh, even if we understand or grasp something about the mystery. But it, a mystery must remain a mystery. The, begin, the minute we, we try to uh, uh, really define it and explain it, we're making it, we're, we're taking, taking it out of the realm of being a mystery. Now, I'd like to read just um, a few verses. From the very beginning of the Bible, the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then from the end of the creation story, from the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which, we, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So what we see here is that when God finished his creation, he didn't only say it's good, he said it's very good. And then we have the um, the explanation for what we call the Shabbat, the Sabbath. God rested because it was complete, because it was perfect, because God look, could look at his creation and be very pleased with what he had created. This, of course, was the condition before man fell and before sin entered in. But what, what happened when God created the world? I think it's something that we really need to, to consider and to think about. How it was in the beginning. What really happened? Because if we understand that, uh, we will understand many other, other mysteries in the Bible. In the beginning there was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God is eternal, and God is King, and was always King, and always will be King. And if there is a King, then there is a Kingdom, because you cannot have a King without a Kingdom, you must reign. 
and God reigns in heaven in his eternal kingdom. So that is a, 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 a what can I say, a, a very um, small picture of something so, so enormous. Then God creates the earth. He creates the heavens and the earth. The heavens uh, in, in the Bible are not speaking about eternity, in this, at least in this verse. The heavens are speaking about the whole cosmos, the stars, the planets, space that seems to have no beginning and no end, though it too is a creation. It is not the eternal. So God created the heavens. He didn't create the heavens. There are the heavens, uh, the eternal heavens. The, the heavens, as we understand, are a creation. And he created the earth, the seas, and all that's in the, in the seas, all the living creatures, the earth, the plants, the trees, the animals. And finally, he creates man. The last, the last thing that he creates is man. And he creates man in the image of God. Now we need to really reflect that what, what does that mean? It means that man who is a physical creation uh, has, there was a merging of the eternal and the physical because he is created in the image of God. He has something that is like God in him, especially before he fell. He, it, it's not a question, I believe, of the fact that man is more intelligent than the animals. Because we can see in history, and even in recent history, the extreme misuse of man's intelligence to the point that it has, it has become demonic. So it's not the intelligence, but it has to do with the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the loving heart of God. That is what the image of God has to do with. And man is able, and not only is he able, he is created to have communion with God. He is created to have unbroken communion with God. He is, he, is, he is created to call God His Father. He is created to walk with God, to have fellowship with God, an unbroken fellowship. And God gives man dominion over the entire creation. But that dominion is under God, not without God, but under God, in submission to God in relationship to God. God is above man at all times. That's how it was in the beginning. And through this relationship with God, man is given authority over this creation. But that authority looked very, very different from what we see today. Very, very different. Because there was, at that time, there was no death. There was no fear. There was no sickness. The eternal had entered into the creation. There was a fusion, we can say, between the eternal and the created. It's something we cannot even imagine because we're so used to the cycle of what we call life. There's a beginning, there's an end. Uh, we see it in nature, we see it with, with, with spring and summer and, and, and fall and winter. We, 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 we cannot even conceive of this creation without the cycles of life being born, getting older, and finally dying. That was not the case in the beginning. There was this coming together of the two, the eternal and the Created. And it was especially manifest in man. Now I believe that that has to do with the mystery of what is a sacrament. Because a sacrament is something physical and visible. And yet, if we believe, 
that, uh, for instance, in, in communion or in, 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 uh, in, in the Eucharist, we believe that when the words are spoken over the bread, this is my body broken for you, and over the cup, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, when Jesus spoke it, he meant it. He didn't say, this symbolizes my, my body, this bread. He didn't say, this, this cup symbolizes my blood. He said, this is. And if he said, this is, then it is. And, uh, and it, it's a mystery, but it is the coming together uh, somehow in a mysterious way of the, the eternal into the physical, and the physical becomes the eternal, even though it's invisible. Now, there's something like this in creation. The, the, the eternal and the physical come, came together. Uh, God is still God, he's, he, he's still invisible, and yet he, he, He's there in, in the creation. And so the creation, in the beginning, one can say, was a sacrament. It was a sacrament, because the physical, uh, the physical somehow was transformed so that the physical laws that we know now, they, 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 they didn't exist at that time. It was when sin entered again, when man was disobedient. It was when the relationship between God and man was broken that everything changed. We read in the Bible that one of the things that happened after Adam and Eve sinned was that they suddenly became aware of the fact that they were naked, and they took fig leaves and made a garment and covered themselves. Now, I, I can only tell you something that I think it's not written in the Bible, and I'm not saying that this is, this is the Word of God. I'm just saying this is something I've considered. And I personally believe that before they sinned, they were dressed, but they were covered with the glory of God. When they discovered they were naked, they discovered that that departed. It was no longer there. And so they tried to find a way uh, to cover themselves up. But originally, I believe, they were covered with the glory of God. Now, I think that if we have this understanding, it will help us to understand other things that happen in the Bible. Of course, the ultimate uh, the ultimate reality of the two coming together, heaven and the created, is in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was truly man, but truly God. And in his birth, the two come together. He, he, he is conceived by the Holy Spirit, but he is descendant of David, actually through the line of the lineage of Mary. Because biologically, we only, he is of the lineage of, of David, and so it can only be through Mary. But the two, the two come together in, 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 in him, and, so, and they cannot be divided. We can say he's verily man and he's verily God, but we're not going to be able to say this part is man and this part is God. There's a coming together that is, it, 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 it is inseparable. Now once, once sin entered in, we, 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 we read about the first exile. The first exile takes place when man is, has to leave the garden. What was the garden? The garden was a special place that God prepared for man. He was not just in nature, he was in a garden that God especially planted for him. It was a choice place, a beautiful place, a place of life. But the most important thing about the garden, I believe, is that it was the first sanctuary. It was the first sanctuary. It was because it was a place of fellowship with God. That was, that was the most wonderful thing about the garden, was that man walked with God. And we remember that when he sinned, he hides. And the Lord says in Hebrew, Ayeka, where are you? Where are you? We, we walk together all the time. But where are you now? You're hiding. And, and something, something had changed. So the garden was this place of this sanctuary where man walked with God. 
as his father. And then, uh, I won't go into the whole story, we know it. <laughs> and then he is exiled. Now, after the exile, because God is faithful, because God, God's plans and purposes can never ever be defeated, no matter what Satan does, God will always reach his goal. The way may be a very long way, and sometimes seem a seemingly complicated way, but God will always reach his goal. And so really, the Bible is very, very much about the way back, and I would say even the way beyond. And this is, if we understand this, then we, 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 we begin to understand the whole kind of the, 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 the plan of, the, of God in the Bible. It's the way back. And there, then, is we, then we can begin to rightly understand the mystery of Israel. Israel has to do with the way back to God. Israel has to do with the kingdom of God coming into this world in its fullness. Now I know there are a lot of Christians that uh, they don't have a view of this. Some of the Protestants speak about the millennium, uh, but even there I often feel there's something lacking. But in the historical churches, generally speaking, there is no um, there is no real understanding of a coming kingdom uh, that God's kingdom is going to come in its fullness on this earth. Now, why is that important? We say, well, when we die, we go to heaven and we're with the Lord and we're up there in the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, that's true. But there are different steps, but it is important for us to understand that what God began in the beginning, He doesn't abandon it. Yeah. It's, not, it's not finished now, His, He has plan B, because plan A failed. That is not God's way. What God began in the beginning, He is going to conclude even in a greater way, through His Son. Yeshua HaMashiach, the King of the Jews and King of all kings. He's going to, he's going to uh, complete it. And so, he, he, in this plan, after, after the terrible things happened with the flood, that where, where mankind in a very short time deteriorates to the point, to the point that God only finds one man, and this is not a legend, this is a true story. He only found one man and his and his sons and his wife that he could that he could save. But God is, is, is after that we see shortly after the flood again the, the 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 fallen nature of man in the whole story of Babel. But he finds a man called Abram, Avram, and he calls this man and he says. Leave behind, leave behind your land, your father's house, your culture, everything. Make a complete break and follow me to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and in you and through you all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Yes. Now I think, I, I see so many things in those few verses, but... One of the things that um, I wonder that the, that the church fathers didn't see was that in these verses we already see of a, a particular nation, Israel, and the universal, the nations. And through Abraham, these two parts of humanity are blessed, are God's people. So from the very beginning, we, we see two parts of humanity, the Jews, and the nations who are blessed of God. And, and unfortunately, in, in church history, that was lost. That was lost. But that was there in the very beginning. But the land is very, very important. The land has to do with incarnation. The land 
has to do with the kingdom. That's what it's all about. If you look at the story of Israel, people, you know, today it's become such a controversial subject again, especially in the last years. Because, and, and we cannot expect the world to understand, but we can expect many, many Christians to understand this mystery of the land. What's the mystery of the land? Why is Israel this little peanut on the planet? Why is it so important? Why is it so important? Because there is something that is there. Jesus says about Jerusalem, he says, it is the city of the great king. Now, we remember that, that Jerusalem rejected the great king. We remember that when Yeshua came, he was rejected. He said, if you only knew the time of your visitation, you, 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 know, you would have been saved. But you missed it. Nevertheless, it is the city of the great king. And because that, that has to do with the sacramental nature of Jerusalem. It is already, even though we don't see it. Even though it looks so far away, and I have been living in the land of Israel for about 45 years, and uh, there, there's so much that one doesn't see that the Bible speaks about, but it's there. It is the city of the great king. Even if the nations are arguing about it and want to divide it, and there's a Cairo statement about the Palestinian state, all of this stuff, it doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a thing, because it is what God has said it is. And the land of Israel has to do with the kingdom. Everything to do with the kingdom. We're not there yet, but it's there. It's, it's, it's there. That's the identity of the land. Whether it's, whether it's hidden, or whether most people don't see it, that's what it is. Now we see in the Bible, for instance, in the, in the, in the first book of Samuel, that um, when Samuel's sons had also not been walking in the ways of the Lord, Israel calls out for a king. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel is very, very grieved about this. And God says, you should not be grieved. I am grieved because they have rejected me from being their king. That's what it's always about. And that's what the Gospels are about. The kingship. The kingship of our God. The kingship of our Messiah. And so that's what we see there in, 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 in 1 Samuel. We see that it was God's intention from the beginning for Israel to be a real theocracy. Not as the Muslims paint theocracy. That's demonic to say it very simply, but God wanted to be king, which what does that mean? It means in every aspect of life, in every aspect of life, whether washing the dishes, or sweeping the floor, or mowing the lawn, or whatever we are doing, it, it, it's an expression of the kingdom of God. We're in fellowship with God. God enters into life, into every aspect of life. That is what, that was God's intention from the beginning with Israel. Now we can say, as, as, as the church has often said, well, Israel failed terribly. Yes, it's true. We failed terribly. I sometimes wonder, to tell you the truth, I sometimes wonder, why did you choose Israel? I mean, when we left Egypt, we, we immediately started complaining. It would have been better for us to be here and to die in Egypt. Why did you take us? Why did you take us here into the wilderness? This complaining was, was constantly there. Moses goes up to the mountain to, to receive the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Israel makes a golden calf. And Moses is deeply grieved when he comes down and he sees what the people did. But God knew who he chose. And Israel, in many ways, typifies all of humanity. We need to understand that. We typify humanity. It's not that we are worse. We're worse in the sense that we were chosen 
and, we, and we've done so many bad things. That's what, in that sense, we're worse. But in terms of what we have done to grieve the heart of God, I mean, if you make a, take a parallel, if you take a parallel between uh, the history of Israel and the history of the church, you're going to see a lot of parallels. You're going to see a lot of things that are very, very similar. If you look at the priesthood in Israel in the time of Jesus, and you look at some of the terrible things that happened in church history with the priesthood, uh, there's not much of a difference, except it's even on a larger scale in the church than it was in Israel. So Israel typifies, Israel is a mirror, is a mirror of humanity, of fallen humanity, but God is in the process of redeeming redeeming Israel. Israel also has to do with the faithfulness of God and the love of God. Though we have grieved God, though we have disappointed God, He loves us. And He's going to finish what He began. He's going to fulfill what He, what he said to Abraham in the very beginning. I'm going to make you a great nation. And a great nation there doesn't mean you're going to be a very big nation. It means you're going to be great in the quality of life. You're going to, you're, you're going to be really a mamlechet kohanim v'goyim You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This will happen. Why? Because God is God. Because God is faithful. Because God keeps His word. Because God always reaches his goal, and of course, because of the sacrifice of Yeshua, his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, it's a sure thing. We may not see it, or we may see it only in part, but it is a sure, sure thing. Now, Jerusalem. What about Jerusalem? Is it over with Jerusalem? Well, some people can quote something in the New Testament where, where the Lord says, you know, God is not, it's not, not looking at Jerusalem or here, but those who worship Him in spirit and truth. That's true. That's the first thing. But, but the story of Jerusalem has hardly begun. Has hardly begun. If we look at the Scripture, and I'm going to read some Scriptures to you, that prophetic Scriptures that have to do with Jerusalem. I want to read from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3. And I'm going to read from verse uh, 16 to 18. <clears throat> Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. They shall walk no more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. And they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. Now I know... I have uh, encountered many believers over the years that are always talking about finding the Ark of the Covenant. And there was even one man who said he found it uh, in, in near, near the place of the garden tomb, you know, he, he, uh, that the, the cross was, was on top of the mountain and that some of the blood of Jesus dripped through uh, and fell between the two cherubim on the Ark, and then he found it. Uh, I personally don't believe that's so. But, yeah, that's, that's what I believe. 
But it says that they will no longer seek the Ark of the Covenant. Why won't they seek the Ark of the Covenant anymore? I mean, it was the holiest article in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Because the Ark of the Covenant was in the Old Covenant, or in the First Covenant, it was also the symbol for the throne of God. And so here in the scripture in Jeremiah, it speaks of the literal throne of God, the throne of David, which the angel Gabriel promised to, to, to Jesus when he spoke to Mary. He said, God will give him the throne of his father, David. The throne is so important. Where is the throne of David? Is it in heaven? No. The throne of David is in Jerusalem. And there's only one who's going to sit in that throne. Even if you read uh, Jewish liturgy in the, in the Siddur, you'll always see the, the, the scriptures there about, um, about the son of David and about the throne of David. I remember when I, when I uh, was an Orthodox Jew, and uh, sometimes we'd read um, the, uh, the prophetic uh, scriptures, so there's a special blessing that you say in the end. And one, of the, one, of, one part of that blessing is, Al Kiso Lo Yeshev On his throne, a stranger shall not sit. That throne is reserved for Yeshua. If we want to understand what Christians uh, consider or will celebrate as uh, Palm Sunday, uh, the coming in, the coming in of Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem. What was that all about? He was coming in as the Davidic king, as the heir to the throne of David. That's what that scripture in Zechariah chapter 9 is talking about. And in chapter 9 of Zechariah, it speaks about his reign going to the ends of the earth. Now, that, that has not happened yet because the crucifixion took place. So the first part of that prophecy was fulfilled. The second part is yet to be fulfilled at his second coming. He will be seated on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem his reign will spread and cover the entire earth. I want to read a few more scriptures that I think are, uh, are important. Also from Jeremiah. Chapter 33, I believe. Yeah. Jeremiah 33, and beginning with verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform the good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called. She meaning Jerusalem will be called. The Lord our righteousness. In Hebrew, Yahweh Sidkenu. Yahweh is the holy name of God. So Jerusalem is going to be called the Lord Yahweh Sidkenu. Because the king is seated there. Who is God? Who is the righteousness of God? This is enormous. It, it, it's, it's so significant. It's something we need, to, we need to wake up to, that God has a plan for planet Earth, and that Israel and Jerusalem have a central place in the fulfillment of God's plan for planet Earth, for the king to reign. We, we, we need to see this. What, what, what is the main message of the Gospels? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what it's about. What are most of the parables about? The most of the parables are about the kingdom. 
They're about the kingdom, different ways of describing the kingdom or separation that will be what that, that will take place. Jesus is the king. He is born king of the Jews. The wise men come from far away, and they're not Jews. But they understand from something they see in the heavens, the star. They understand that something enormous is about to take place. This is not just a very romantic Christian Christmas story. This is this is a tremendous reality. They they see something enormous, and so they follow the star. And then they, finally they come to this infant, and they give him the, the gifts that you give to a king. He is truly honored there as the king. In other places, he is mocked at the end of his life as the king. But there, he is honored as the king. So the Gospels begin with him being born as the king, the king of the Jews. And, 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 and he is born in, in, in the lowest place of all because they couldn't find a place in the beginning even to, even to be for him to be born. And so they probably went into some cave somewhere where the animals go in, and, they, and he's laid in the manger. The manger is the place where the animals eat their food. That was his cradle, but he is the king. And probably a bit later, when the wise men come, they, they move to a place uh, uh, in Bethlehem. And so they see him as king, and they worship him as the king. Not just, not just another king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. Who is the king of the Jews? It is God. It is God. He is the king of the Jews. And even at the crucifixion, where he is mocked as king of the Jews, that mockery, in that mockery, his true kingship, his true kingly nature is completely revealed. The fact that he is ready to go that extreme weight of humiliation the fact that he, he is ready to wear a crown of thorns, which not only pained him physically, but the humiliation, the extreme humiliation of having to wear a crown of thorns. This is his kingly nature. This is his royal nature. In his humility, in his obedience to God, in his love for God, this is his nature. And, 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 and then he goes to the cross. And he's ready to go through that horrible, horrible experience, which uh, it, it's not just the physical. It's, it, it's the whole thing. He's the son of God. He's the son of God. And he's hanging on the cross and there are people are mocking him saying, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. I mean, we cannot, we have heard the story, we have read it so many times, but we cannot really fathom, unless the Holy Spirit gives us some enormous revelation we cannot really fathom the, the, the humiliation that Jesus went through, but the, the royal nature that brought us salvation. This is, this is so important. This is so important for us to understand. But it's all about him being king. And if he's king, and he's king of the Jews, it means he's going to reign. It means that Israel is going to be transformed or transfigured even. I love the transfiguration. I love it. Because there we see Jesus in his heavenly glory. There we see Jesus as the source of all light. Not reflected light. But he is the light in the transfiguration. He, 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 the light was brighter than the sun. That's not just a, a, a dramatic description. That was the truth. He, it's the uncreated light. He is the uncreated light. And the light shines forth from Him. And the, and the disciples, they, they saw the three. And I always wonder, how could it happen? After they saw this, how could it happen that, as we heard, Peter denied him? How could it happen that the disciples left him? It gives you something to think about. It gives you something to think about what, what fear can do. I mean, after seeing this, experiencing this, seeing Moses and Elijah and hearing the God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. I mean, what could be greater than that? And yet we see human nature. 
But all of these things are proclaiming something. And another very interesting thing. What was the last question that the disciples asked Yeshua before he ascends into heaven? They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus didn't say, no, that's all over. That's, uh, that was the old uh, covenant. It's finished now. We're going into a new time. It's the church age. He didn't say that. He said, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons, the mo'adim that we read about in the beginning when God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. It is not for you to know the mo'adim that the Father has set in His own authority. That's enormous. God has set it in His own authority. In other words, it's already set. It's not for you to know. This is not the time now. Go forth, preach the gospel, bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they didn't fully understand that because in their thinking it was still only to the Jewish people. We have to understand that. It was only later that God reveals that the gospel is to go to the Gentiles. In the beginning, the thinking was, and it's the normal Jewish thinking, of course, Messiah, God has promised him to us. But, but then, then, then God reveals it is for all, all of humanity. But that was their task at that time. But that was the last question. And it's a normal question for Jewish people to ask. Why? When Jewish people speak about the Messiah, they always say, Melech HaMashiach, King Messiah. King and Messiah always go together. Because in the Jewish understanding, even if it's far from complete, Messiah is the king. He's going to reign. He's going to reign on all the earth. And we see this in the temptation of Jesus. We see it in the temptation. What was the great temptation? Satan takes him up to a high place. He says, if you bow down before me, I'll give you all of these. Now the Lord knew that he was going to get all the kingdoms, but he would not bow down to save him because he would lose everything if he did that, God forbid. But that was the great temptation because it's about the kingdom. It's about the kingdom. And we even see, there's an interesting verse that's in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's in Matthew uh, 19, uh, 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you, that in the regeneration, and in Hebrew it's translated, the renewal of creation. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on His throne of His glory, you who have followed Me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Interesting scripture. How many people have thought about what that means? But we see, even in the book of Revelation, the importance of the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles. Uh, when John is taken up into heaven, he sees 24 thrones. Some people wonder, what, what does that mean? Does it mean Jew and Gentile? I'll tell you what I think it means. Again, I'm, 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 I'm a bit careful. I'm not going to say this is it, but this is how I understand it. I believe that the 12 and 12 have to do with the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes. I believe that those are the 24 elders around the throne. And we see this in the heavenly Jerusalem. What do we see? We see that the foundation stones are 12 found precious foundation stones, which are the 12 apostles. And we see that the 12 gates into the city, over each gate is the name of one of the tribes of Israel. So again, there's a coming together there. A coming together of that which is of the new covenant and that which is what we call the old covenant. They come together. We see the 144,000 in, in, in the book of Revelation from the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is not something that has passed away. This has something to do with a coming together of, 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 of the two parts, again, the apostles 
and the twelve tribes. There's a coming together. That's when we speak of Jew and Gentile. There is a coming together of the two. But we have to understand how they came together in the beginning. What does this mean? Does it just mean that the two merge together and then the, the Jews kind of lose their identity? We kind of enter into a neutral reality. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that the Gentiles have been have entered into the tabernacle of David. That was a scripture that the apostles used. The, the, what was the meaning of the raising up of the tabernacle of David? The raising up of the tabernacle of David, I believe this is how the apostles understood it. The raising up of the tabernacle of David had to do with the birth of the messianic community, or what we call the early church in Jerusalem. Because the preaching on the day of Pentecost that Peter, when he preaches, he's speaking about David. He says, David, your father is, is buried here. But the scripture in Psalm 16 is saying, I will not suffer my holy one to see corruption. So who is it speaking about? One who would not see corruption. It's the Messiah who rose from the dead. But it's connected to David. And another interesting little detail. And that is that in the Jewish tradition, King David was born on Pentecost and he died on Pentecost. This is the Jewish tradition. And that is one of the reasons why you will see, if you go up to Mount Zion where the traditional tomb of David is, on the eve of Pentecost, you see many, many people sitting there. And they'll stay there the whole night. They'll be reading the Bible because it is also believed that God gave the Torah on, on Pentecost, but also, also David's birth and David's death. And so there was a crowd that was there. Did you ever wonder why there was such a crowd uh, uh, when, when the apostles came out? That was the reason why. Because it was Pentecost, and they were remembering the giving of the Torah, and they were remembering also the birth and the death of David. And so they came out and they preached the message to the people of Israel. And so that was the church, that was the raising up of the tabernacle of David. And coming into that tabernacle of David, which is what they understood in Acts uh, chapter 15, uh, the restoration, the Gentiles uh, who are called by my name, they enter into the tabernacle of David. They are joined to the Jews who believe in Messiah, to the early, what we call the early is part of the church. That was the apostolic understanding. That was the understanding in Romans 11. What was the apostolic understanding in Romans 11? Paul is, is sees as a problem in Rome. It's interesting that it was in Rome, that there was a problem in the church. We don't know exactly what the problem was, but it had to do with something that where some of the, 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 the non-Jews were saying, well, we don't really need those Jews. We're, there's more of us than them, and we don't really need them. And so Paul gives them the picture of the cultivated olive tree. He says, this is cultivated olive tree, and some branches have been broken off because they didn't believe. We know what that means. He says, but you are a wild olive tree, but you've been grafted into the cultivated olive tree. You've become part of the cultivated olive tree represents the messianic family of God. You've been grafted into that. You've become part of that. You are co-equal, but you're in that olive tree. If we ever think of, we're thinking about unity, well, I, I believe Romans 11 gives us some keys to unity. It has to do with being re-grafted in to the cultivated olive tree. Because all the branches, all the wild branches, no matter how many denominations we have, they're all grafted in to the cultivated olive tree. The only thing is the cultivated olive tree has to get much stronger than it is. It's still very small and very little. But one day it, it's going to get bigger. And in Ephesians chapter 2, what was the understanding there? You have been far away. You have now become part of the commonwealth of Israel. So the thinking is always the same, the apostolic thinking. But this has been lost. But I want to come back to the land of Israel. Because... Because, you know, we read in Revelations, the end of chapter 11, we read about 
The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah. So there's going to be some point in history, it's nearly sure it will be when the Lord returns, that there will be an end to what we call the kingdoms of this world, which is basically, according to the book of Daniel, the, the extension of the Babylonian, Babylonian spirit, because the head of the statue that this little rock uh, smashes is gold and it's Babylon. And all the nations underneath are, are, are the body of, of, of this statue. But at one point in history, this little stone, not cut with hands, which means human, human beings haven't formed the stone. It's a rough stone, but it represents the kingdom of God. This little stone, it will smash this statue, and this stone will grow and cover the whole earth. We must get a vision for the coming kingdom when Yeshua will reign upon the earth, where there will be righteousness, where there will be holiness, where there will be everything we are yearning for, where there will be a restoration of nature, because the Lord is the creator. These are the things that are coming, and Israel is the seed. Israel is the little, the little thing that that, that's going to grow and expand until it covers the whole earth. That's why this issue is so important. Because it is the next step in God's plan. There is the, the bride coming into completion. And I personally believe it's going to happen shortly before the second coming of the Lord. And we're not so far away from that, even though we can't imagine yet how he's going to do it. There is the bride coming into completion. There is the, 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 the second coming of the Lord. And there is what is traditionally called the millennium that is coming with the first resurrection of the dead. And that we will rule and reign with Messiah at that time. The heavenly Jerusalem, that's the next stage. That comes later. But what is, what is before us now is the completion of the bride, the second coming of the Lord, and the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth, where Yeshua will be king, king of the Jews, and king of kings, and lord of lords. That's, what that's the mystery of Israel. Israel is a state today. I live there. We're full of sin. We, 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 we desire to be like all the nations of the world, as we always have. Uh, but the, Lord's gonna, the Lord has a way. I don't know how he's going to do it. Sometimes I wonder. But I, I know he has a way. I know he's going to reach his goal with this people. It's going to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's going to become a nation that will be a blessing to all of humanity. It already has, in many ways, been. I don't have to go over the points, but it's something that is yet to happen in a way we have not seen. And, uh, and Jerusalem is going to become a, a, a glorious, glorious place because it is the city of the great king. He has put his name on that city like no other city on planet Earth because it is his city. It's going to be the place where the heart of the bride or the heart of the house of God is going to be built and established in Jerusalem. It's going to be because this is, this is just there in the genes of Jerusalem. It's there. It's hidden, it's, it, it's not seen, the world doesn't see it, the world doesn't know it, but that is its true identity. And that is the true identity of the land of Israel. And that is why the gospel is about the kingdom that is coming. And, 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 and we need to have that, that mentality and understand, as we heard yesterday, about being disciples, being disciples, learning what it means to be disciples of the Lord so that we will rule and reign with Him in righteousness, in holiness, in everything that we could ever desire 
it's going to be an even more. May God bless you. Amen. Amen.